Hey, it's Doug Sandler from the Turnkey Podcast. When I'm not creating my own podcast episodes, I'm listening to the Follow Your Dream Podcast, hosted by Robert Miller. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Miller. This podcast is for all you dreamers out there. Everyone has a dream. Mine was music. It took me a long time, but finally, when I was in my 60s, I followed my dream to success. I want to help you to pursue and succeed at your dream. I'm going to feature others on this podcast who successfully followed their dream, just like today's guest. I've told you that each episode of the podcast is going to start with a different song of mine that's played underneath the introduction. In the intro to this episode, you heard a snippet, a bit of my song, No One's Fool, by my band Project Grand Slam from our 2019 album called PGS7. I'll tell you more about it, and you'll hear the entire song at the end of this episode. I chose this song because my guest today is certainly no one's fool. He is incredibly accomplished and successful in so many areas. My guest is Rob Jollis. Rob is a highly sought-after professional speaker and five-time best-selling author. He spent over 35 years teaching, entertaining, and inspiring audiences worldwide. His books have been featured in USA Today, the Harvard Business Review, Publishers Weekly. They've spent over 100 weeks on the national business bestseller list and have been translated into over a dozen languages. Some of his bestsellers include The Way of the Road Warrior, How to Change Minds, and Why People Don't Believe You. He's been featured on over 70 radio shows. He gets hired by some of the biggest corporations in the world to motivate and inspire their employees. He's motivated and inspired me too. Rob, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Boy, every time I hear that intro, I a little tear goes into my eye. Gosh, I'm a good guy. Don't cry now, okay? Keep that smile on your face. So, Rob, I start off almost every interview asking my guests, tell me about your dream when you were young. What was that? You know, it's interesting, and I almost got there, too. My dream was to be, I had two dreams. First, to be a basketball player, but uh, I, I hit college at about five, six, uh, 125 pounds. And although I tried out for University of Maryland and Lefty Drizel, I was quickly cut. So one was to be a basketball player. That didn't quite work out. Uh, the other was to be an actor and to be a performer. And that kind of worked out, just not quite the direction I thought it was going to go. Well, I think that you are definitely in that realm. I mean, but why? What was it about those professions that attracted you? Yeah, well, 
You know, I've always thought of writing an autobiography and my wife hates the title. It's called The Organ Grinder's Monkey because I'm the monkey. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the guy. You, you put a quarter on a box, I'll get up and do you a dance. Uh, and I actually think we all kind of organ grinders monkeys in our own way. But my dad put me on a table in the Catskill Mountains. I'm told I was four. I just remembered. I don't know. I didn't know how old. And I had just learned the bear went over the mountain. He put me on a table. I got about three verses in. It got louder and louder in there. And I thought, oh, my, I want more of that. Uh, it was the feeling. It was the feeling of an audience reacting to, to a performance that got in my blood at age four and it never left. Wow. So you were an extrovert even at that age, huh? Oh, yeah. I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I was, uh, what, seven, eight years old when the Beatles were hitting uh, the Ed Sullivan show. And uh, I had a Beatles, a Ringo Starr wig. And my dad used to wake me up, put on the wig, come on down, do the get on the table and do the twist. Now, why was it a Ringo Starr wig? That's what I want to know. <laughs> it was it was just this little flat thing across the front uh it looked pretty good uh so and all the go, girls were screaming for paul and john and you were screaming for ringo huh you know what it's funny though i thought ringo i could identify with because ringo was the character he didn't have the best voice he didn't he maybe he couldn't play the guitar uh or the bass but there was something that drew people to him and um i just liked him because i thought he was a character and he was interesting to me he was. And he was also kind of the glue in that band. Mm -hmm. He held these, you know, big personalities together. And uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing experience when you go back that far and you think about where the world has come to since that time. Yeah, you know, and we didn't know, like many things, we don't know what we have until we don't have it. So uh, when I grew up and, you know, the Beatles were performing and, and and the Rolling Stones were coming in and the British invasion was moving through, I thought that happens every year you know, or every decade or every lifetime. Um, were, and maybe it does, but wow. There were millions of kids, myself included, that had a trajectory in life that started from exactly that moment when the Beatles went on Ed Sullivan. It was a life-changing moment for so many, and it's unfortunate, but today's generation just has not been able to experience something like that. That's true. I mean, that kind of energy. You know, every now and then I'll hear the Beatles played uh, live at the Hollywood Bowl, and there's so much screaming in, in that recording that I don't believe they've ever actually made it available for purchase. And uh, even when with, I'm with my wife, she's like, well, how can you like this? You can barely hear the words. And it's and it's it's not the words. It's the energy. It's that sound, that high pitch sound of of that audience reacting that to me made the music beautiful. You know, speaking of Ringo, the, the, if you ever read anything about him, he, he, he'll be the first to admit that at the time that they came out, they thought it was going to be a one or a two year wonder at best. And his goal was to transition into opening a hairdressing salon, okay? <laughs> so if you ever meet Ringo, ask him about that. How's that hairdressing salon coming? <laughs> I never knew that story, but that's that's a very good story. And why not? That's where 95% of the bands did uh, go, about two years if you were lucky and a couple of good hits and um, see what you can do with it. Yeah. So you, you're you're the organ grinder's monkey, you're standing on tables, you're performing for adults and anybody else around. You're in the Catskill Mountains. Tell me how you made the transition from there. What, what was next in your life? 
Well, it went kind of slow. I, you know, I, I performed, uh, my brother was more of the actor in the family. I was more of the athlete. So my folks kind of pushed me away from acting, but uh, I got a taste of it in high school after my brother graduated, was not allowed to be a theater major when I went to Maryland. So I was a good old business major, but you know, I came out and I started selling insurance of all things. I'm 21 years old. I'm kind of miserable. Uh, I didn't have any trouble selling it. I just kept thinking, is this what it is? Is this why I'm on the earth? And you talk about an, an unbelievable event on a Monday morning with 22 apprentice field underwriters. The entire management team, which consisted of five people, were stuck. They went out for breakfast and somebody double parked behind them. The phone rang. 22 other people could have picked it up, but I picked it up. And they said, Jalice, listen, we're stuck. Do something. Just do something. Don't tell them we're stuck. Just get up and do something. So I stood up in front of the room and I said, okay. And I'd learned this was a script called the Live, Die, Quit story. It was a, a canned sales presentation. and But I knew it word for word. And I decided I had directed a couple of shows. I'm going to direct this. I'm going to teach these salespeople how to perform this, not memorize it, perform it. And an energy started sort of reaching me in that room and management came in about 40 minutes later and just kept waving me on like, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And I smiled and I thought, they just lost an insurance agent today because I'm going to get more of this. And I, and I found a way of kind of combining business with performance. And that led me to corporate training. So your public performance career started with a bunch of insurance agents. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, it actually started with the bear went over the mountain. But yes, the, the, the real business loan was a bunch of insurance agents learning how to deliver. This plan won't just take care of you if you live or die. It'll even take care of you if you quit. And uh, it was about an eight-page piece. And I learned it like an actor, so I directed it like an actor. And yeah, uh, it wasn't long after that began pursuing corporate training positions. And then, you know, my appetite just kept growing. So the blood was flowing when you were on, on that stage. Is that what you're saying? The organ grinder's monkey was grinding away there. Yes, he was. Yep. Okay. That's, that's a fascinating story, really. I mean, you got to be the first insurance salesman in the history of the world that was like an actor when you're up there. Yep. And you probably sold a lot of insurance too, am I, I right? I sold an enormous amount of insurance. I was very successful at it. Was it life, property, or casualty? Come on. I was a life, health, and disability man, uh, property and casualty. That's too easy. If you <laughs> sell death, you really know how to sell. So uh, yeah, now I was a life, health, and disability man. And anybody who's listening to this is probably going, oh yeah, because if you've ever seen the movie Glengarry, Glenn Ross, that was tame compared to the rooms that I was in. Oh, God. Yep. I, I can imagine. You helped to give the profession a bad name. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, let me put it this way. I, when I wrote my first book on selling, I wanted to call it one more than a dead man, because every Monday morning when I came in, you were asked how many apps you sold and you never sold zero. You just, you just sold one to a cheap family friend or, or member of the family that week. But if you had one, the, ma the manager could never quite hear it. You had to repeat it. And it was always greeted with, well, that's pretty good, Joel's. That's one more than a dead man, isn't it? And I'm very inspired. Thank you, sir. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to tackle the world now. Thank you. Unbelievable. All right. So tell me, you became the organ grinder's monkey. Then you became the professional insurance actor. How did you make the next transition in your life? Okay. 
So when I hung it up at New York Life and I said, because my numbers were good, and I said, I, I'm just uh, not feeling it. I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm going to go expand. They made me a sales trainer. And all of a sudden, now I had a little bit of a, a performance fix. And you know what I mean when I say a performance oh, fix. Yes. I had to get that taste of getting in front of room. Okay, I was, I was schlepping insurance lessons, but I was in front of a room with energy and activity and every day was different. And I spent uh, another year uh, in New York and working as a trainer. Uh, then I worked as a trainer, quick stop for about a year for a computer sciences corporation where I taught flood insurance, two-day seminars, 16 fascinating hours on the wonders of flood insurance to claims adjusters, actuaries, and underwriters. If you've ever seen Ferris Bueller's Dale off and you know this scene, Bueller, that was my room. But when I got done with that, I really believed I, you can give me a rock. I can, I can teach it for 16 hours. And um, so that, to me, that was actually a very valuable part of my upbringing in a sense of you want to learn how to, to control and grab a room, take the worst topic possible with the worst audience possible, survive on it for about a year and a half. And man, the world's your oyster. So from there, Xerox called. I said, okay, went to Xerox, sold for them, then became a trainer for about nine years. And I'm 27 years now on my own. I go around the world. I give uh, keynotes, workshops, presentations. Uh, but uh, that, that was the trajectory. But before you became this big rock star, were you saying to yourself, I've, I found what I want to do. I want to be in sales. I want to be in motivation. I want to be an in inspiration. It's, it almost seems to me like the, you got to that crossroads. You could have gone to the left. You could have gone to the right. You, you could still be selling insurance. You know, if you let yourself go in that direction, but you went in a different direction, you use that as your motivation, as your, your lynch pad, your launching pad for a whole different career. Did you do that consciously or did you just kind of fall into it? I think I, I think it would be more like door number two. You know, I always tell people who want to write a book or who are, and I help people in career transition who are, are trying to find what it is. I tell them, you know, in the end, you don't find a career. It tends to find you. And I think it found me. I knew it the moment I stood in front of that insurance group and, and, and felt that performance fix that I needed. And I loved the fact that I could sort of stay in business, but that's when it found me. I'd love to tell you, gee, I had this master plan. I set out goals and I had pieces of paper all for the bedroom. Uh, I didn't. I had a Jimmy Connors poster and a Frank Howard poster. And uh, you'll have to look up Frank Howard. That's a pretty obscure one. But I know Frank Senators fan. We, uh, I had big Hondo up in my, and that was it. I, I, I didn't know, but, but you know, for most of us, and I think this is the lesson. If we're, if we're extracting a lesson, we we have to keep our eyes open. We, we, you know, although I didn't have this specific goal, I knew I had to perform. I knew I had to get back on that table and find a different song than the bear went over the mountain. And, and so I kept that arena alive. I started, I don't know if you remember a group called Open University, uh, also called the Learning Annex. You, you'd see little magazines on the corners of the road. Sure. I, I actually grabbed one of those when I thought, I think I want to do this on my own. I think I want to pursue this as a professional speaker. I actually gave $17 seminars, of which they were kind enough to give me $9 ahead. But I got sort of like a boxer. I got, I got sparring partners. And I got an opportunity to take my, almost like a comedian, work through my material in front of an audience until I sharpened it up and tightened it up. 
And, um, and I mean, I, you know, that's how it, that's how it all came to be. You know, I also, I'm getting this image. I think people of our generation didn't set out with the kind of obligations and goals that I think young people nowadays have to have. In other words, when I graduated college, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. No one was pushing me into a particular way of making a living. I kind of f- figured it out myself what I wanted to do. And music, of course, was at the core of what I wanted to do. And so many of my friends were in the same kind of position. They they didn't set out to become one thing or another. They just kind of gravitated. They weren't. They, there wasn't the pressure from home that you must be this, you must do that. Whereas today, I think kids are so oriented towards you have to have the AP courses, you have to be directed towards a certain kind of college, you have to have a certain life trajectory. Do you find that uh, you agree with that or not? I agree, and it breaks my heart to hear it at the same time because um, I, you know, I don't want to be the you know the old guy standing out by his door going get off my yard. <laughs> but I'm telling you, I I just think something is lost there. I don't know about you, but I rode the bus every day to school, went to public school. And the only conversations we tend to have was whose house were we going to, to play hoops that day, or maybe throw the football around or maybe throw the baseball around, but we weren't running off to, you know, to their various uh, study groups, et cetera. And maybe we weren't the greatest students in the world, but we, we got, we, we did what we needed to do, but there was so much more socialization the, the, I was a boy scout. And I love the troop that I was in. All right, hold on, tro- hold on, hold on. What level did you get to in the boys? All right, all right. Now, uh, we we did not believe in advancement. There were set. I'm going to get to my level. You didn't believe in advancement. We you had to did get not. The, we you had to get merit badges and all of that stuff. We believe advancement. No, sir. We uh, when we went to competition, I want you to know we got bored after four years, but. We went against 50, 60, 70 troops when we sent one patrol and we took first place. The next year we sent two and we took first and second. I, I still to this day believe I hold a world record for not tying. Uh, I, I was clocked twice, by the way, of doing 10 knots uh, for any Boy Scouts listening. The six <laughs> in the handbook and four more that we came up with. 10 knots, uh, 10 ropes in 28 seconds. I want you to know my fondest memory of the Boy Scouts. Yeah. And I made it to Star Scout, which was, I guess, about halfway up the, the, the ladder. My fondest memory is we went away on an overnight hike. It was the middle of the winter, snow everywhere. We're in a cabin with no heat, of course. And at midnight, the, uh, direct, the, the, the group leader, okay, who was probably about 18 at the time, said, all right, everybody outside, strip down naked and run around the cabin three times. That's my recollection of the Boy Scouts. Yeah, you were in the wrong troop. We had ready for this. <laughs> I was ten years old when the troop started, so I was it wasn't even of age. I was a weblo. But we went from seven to one hundred and thirty kids in less than two years. It was an amazing troop. We were led by a, a military leader. We were put in patrols and companies, and we drilled and worked hard. And I want to get to your question about rank. We didn't believe in it. We believed in learning the scouting skills, be able to cook and make a fire and, and, and lash and signal. And, but what happened was we got a guy in that was uh, came in from another town and he was fairly close to Eagle Scout. And the leader brought the four of us in, the four, one of the four first guys to start and said, that will not be our first Eagle Scout. You boys are going for your Eagle starting now. And so we worked hard and fast and I did make Eagle Scout 
And I'm uh, now I look back and I'm quite proud of that Eagle Scout, but it meant nothing to me at the time. It just meant if we're going to have a first Eagle Scout, it's got to be from our core. So I'm ready to roll. All right. All the other stuff you've done, very unimpressive. The Eagle Scout thing, very impressive. All right. Well, thank okay. you. Very impressive. I'm, I'm struggling to remember two of the knots that I learned. Okay. And you made Eagle Scout. Good for you. Okay. So I want to hear more about this transition. When did you become a rock star? Well, you know, I ask my wife, she'll say he's still waiting. But uh, I would say, um, you know, I, I wrote um, this book, Customer Centered Selling, and, and, and I spent two years being rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected. And then just, I'm a guy who just doesn't quit. Uh, you know, you can knock me down, I'm getting back up again. I, I was, I, I got to branch off, but one of my favorite movies was Cool Hand Luke. And, and, and there's a wonder, there's a, amazing scenes in that movie. But there's one scene where Paul Newman's in a fight with George Kennedy and he's George Kennedy is a monster of a man and he gets knocked down and he gets up and he gets Paul Newman gets knocked down and up and three or four or five times until no one's making it's it's sad. People are actually telling him, stay down, you beat. And he says, he's going to have to kill me. And I was 10 years old sitting there watching that movie with my dad and it clicked. Of, well, that's going to be my life. I am not going to stay down. So rejection, 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 dusting myself off until finally, of all publishers, Simon & Schuster called and said, we don't understand why nobody wants this book. And I said, I don't either. And they flew to New York. We signed a deal that day and um, the book took off. And um, in a sense, I think that's what began to put me on the radar screen of, uh, you know, I I'd like to think it was my wonderful personality but more of a, a successful book and, and the credibility that comes with that. And then delivering every time my name was called and a mic was put around my neck. So Simon and Schuster found you. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. in all fairness, they found me because I was sending them proposals about every six months. So no, they, they didn't just go, Hey, who's that skinny guy? They, they did go, this guy, he keeps coming. What, what's he writing about? And, uh, so right, but you didn't give up. You no, were persistent. No. No, yes, yes. No, I take pride in in that is a that is, that's a story that could be repeated in many different ways. Uh, some of which I'm still failing, you know, mag magnificently at. But I do not quit. I will not quit. It's not, I, a matter of fact. You're, you know, we're on screen right now. This is a stone I keep by by my my desk, and it says I got to read. Never, never quit. I just don't quit. No quitting. Mm, well, no you quitting. know, the, the, that's a trait that so many successful people have in common. And, you know, for a, a podcast like this, which is follow your dream, this is all about trying to inspire people that have not done so for whatever reason, because everyone's got a dream to actually take the steps necessary to follow and succeed. And persistence is certainly one of the key elements of succeeding at any dream. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. I mean, you look at Edison, you look at all the amazing inventors and geniuses of the world and <laughs> you know, uh, thousands of failed experiments and projects. And, and yet they have one thing in common. You just keep coming back to the table and trying it again. I think uh, it was Edison who said, when they said, you know, you, 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 you lost a thousand times here. He said, no, I found a thousand ways that, that, that don't work. That got me closer to my solution. I'm butchering that quote, but that's what I took from it. Basically yes. he saw it as a very positive thing. It got him closer and closer. I was a point guard. I had a really good coach. Because I didn't like missing a bunch of shots early, 
But that coach told me every missed shot gets you one step closer to one that's going to drop. I need you to keep shooting. And, um, and again, you put that into the Paul Newman brain of my head. You put that in, uh, even the Rocky Balboa very first Rocky. What does he say? Not sure he can win the fight, but he knows one thing. He is not going to get knocked out. He is not going to lay down on that campus and quit. And again, another movie that inspired me, inspired a lot of people. It's true. Failure is a part of success. And most people don't realize that. Most people are afraid of failure. They think if I failed, that's it. I'm taking my cards. I'm going home. And yet the most successful people in the world are people that have tried different things and probably failed at most of them. But they kept coming back and they did a little twist or a different turn on it, or they evolved in some fashion. Certainly, that's been uh, what happened in my life as well. You know, there is, I say there is no straight line to success. It's one step forward, two steps back, and three steps sideways. And if you keep going in the right direction, you're lucky. But that's what it's all about. It's the ability to continue going in a positive direction. You'll get there if you keep your mind to it. Well, I think you, you know, and I, I, that's so smart. And I, you know, I just, I find myself as, as a guy who puts on podcasts to tell my audience, did you hear that? No straight line. And yet I don't, I rarely see it as a, as a step backwards. It's more just an indirect movement forward and an indirect movement <laughs> forward. And so it's not, a, it's like when we watch somebody going up a mountain with switchbacks, it's the boy, it doesn't necessarily go straight, but we can get to the top of the mountain. And quite frankly, the switchbacks are to keep it, the ground from eroding. So we're helping the mountain. I don't mind a switchback, but I don't go backwards. I don't quit ever. Yep. I can see that. So tell me this. I'm sure you've had challenges in your life. What were some of them? Well, you know, one of the, the one of the first early challenges was, was re, you know, coming to grips with the fact that I was in the wrong place uh, when I was selling life insurance. I, I you know, I thought of, I, I was graduating from the University of Maryland. I knew I could sell. That seemed like a place where I could make a lot of money selling. The company seemed to want to hire me. And, and I look back and uh, I'm not, I think it was actually part of the switchback. I needed to get in there and selling because look what I am. I'm a sales trainer. Imagine if I'm writing books on sales training and people said, gee, what did you sell? And I'd say nothing, but I hear it's very challenging. Uh, so, you know, even that, and, you know, and I remind people, some of your biggest failures, some of the times where you think I'm absolutely wasting my time may someday probably will become one of your greatest assets. So for me, I never, it's not failure as much as just being smart enough to realize when it's time to switch back on the mountain, change course. Don't be afraid to, to pick up your tent and move it to another location. And, and there's no perfect science there, although we do have a voice in our head. Uh, my challenge right back at you really is, Am I quitting or am I making an intelligent decision to reassess, realign, and try something new? And and because the voice, there's a long, loud voice going, you better not be quitting there, Rob. Uh, and the other voice says, no, 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 no. I'm just getting smarter. But I, I'm no quitting here. You know, you reminded me of uh, a little uh, something in my life. I had just graduated college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had my insurance moment like you did but it was a little bit of a variation. I, I got a job looking in the help wanted 
uh, section of the newspaper with UPS. I said, well, okay, that's a big company. I went down and I, I had no idea what they wanted me to do. They act, this is the true, true story. They put me in a room with about 40 other people and we're all sitting at desks and there was a guy in the front of the room like he was the teacher. And we all got papers distributed to us with columns of numbers. And our job was to sit there and add up the column of numbers, not with any kind of a, an implement or an instrument, but just manually adding up numbers. And I remember saying to myself after about an hour of this, that maybe I'm on candid camera because this was the most insane thing I could possibly imagine. And I went, I had a lunch break and I said, okay, what am I going to do with my life? There's not a chance that this is what I was intended to do in my life, to sit at a desk at UPS and add up numbers. And I had that same fear going through my mind that you just said, am I making a tragic mistake leaving? And then I thought about it for another two seconds. I said, that's it. I'm out of here. Never came back after lunch. So you know what? You got to make the right decisions at the right time. And I think people know in their gut what the right decisions are for them. Too many people don't trust their gut. You know, we actually do think in a manner of speaking with our gut. We know when things sit right. We know when things don't sit right. We feel it. We churn in our, in our gut when things are not right. And I think that, again, going forward, I'm, I'm talking to people that have dreams that have not pursued their dreams. Why haven't they pursued their dreams? Well, there's many, many reasons, but sometimes it just didn't feel right to them. And at the same time, as you've been saying, you have to kind of adjust your focus and figure out what makes sense for you. What's the right path for you? Do you want to stay where you are or do you want to evolve? Yeah, I, you know, I, as you can tell, I'm kind of a movies guy. There's an obscure movie from the mid 90s with uh, Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks called Defending Your Life. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. It is. And it's movie. somebody who is a comedy, sort of drama, romantic comedy. But what's the criteria? There he is. He has died and he, they're looking at his life. And you're trying to figure out whether he moves on or whether he goes back and tries it again. So clearly there's a criteria they're looking for. And do you remember what it was? It was fear. It was, did fear hold you back in your life? Or were you able to overcome your fear? It wasn't about winning and losing. It was about not being paralyzed by fear. So you're not even trying. So I, I really think, you know, we're, we're onto something here in this conversation, which is, that tends to be sort of the marker for many people of, yeah, we're all going to fail at times. Uh, matter of fact, I, I will tell you one time on a red eye, I bet you've been on a few of those. Uh, I was, you know, somewhere in la la land and I, and I shot up in my seat and I went, I got it. I have the definition of wisdom and I wrote it down. And to me, the and I still like it. I, I, and the definition was wisdom consists of three things. It consists of success. It consists of failure, and it consists of a conscious knowledge of the lessons learned from each. So if all you've been is successful, congratulations. I, maybe I wouldn't mind trading places with you, but I wouldn't necessarily consider you a wise human being. If all you've had is failure, my heart goes out to you. But most people who are successful not only have that balance, but they can articulate the lessons they learned, which means they don't play the victim card. 
when they get knocked down, they don't blame the other guy or that manager or that company. They go, you know what? This again, I just needed to, I needed to learn that this way. Critical. And there's no fear of failure. And you're correct that most people don't ever take the step because they're consumed by the fear of failure. Oh no, what if it doesn't work? What will people think of me? How can I face the world again if, if this doesn't work? If my dream hasn't come true? And the fact of the matter is that we all fail. We all adjust. You know, I have this dream theory that I have put forward. And one of the theory, one of the elements of the theory is adjust. You have to adjust as you go forward. And I like to quote Mike Tyson, the former heavyweight champ, who said, you know, everybody, when he was asked, do you have a plan of action when you go into the ring? He said, sure, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the face. Okay. And it's true. Most plans will never succeed as presented. They have to be augmented. It's again, the theory that we've just started discussing before, one step forward, two steps back. There's obstacles occur in your life all the time. So do you keep beating your head against the wall by going forward and not getting through the obstacle? Or do you figure out a way around the obstacle or over the obstacle? There are almost always ways to overcome things. Yeah. And think about some of the greatest joys and victories of our life. What are they? They are tied to the biggest challenges and the overcoming of failure or fear. That's where success lies. When you don't have to fight for it, uh, congratulations. Uh, but you, that, that one doesn't last very long. Those, big, those bigger victories come from the bigger, you were on a higher ledge. You had further to fall, probably did get knocked down a few times, but you made it. And that's the one that you hold on to. That, that shapes our character. I agree. What's, uh, what's in the future for you? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm poking around with another book idea. It, it found me. <laughs> and uh, so I'm poking around with that. One thing about authors you'll, you'll find, and you're going to experience this as well, uh, sir, uh, is that uh, the moment you come out with a book, you think, well, now I can, let, I guess maybe like a song. Everybody says, what a great song. Yeah, I really worked out good. What's the next song? When are you writing a new album? Uh, well, when's the new book coming out? You, can, can I just live with this one for a little bit? Just can we, can we give me a week? To, that's right. Give me a week just to <laughs> yeah, mellow let me out just on enjoy it. Enjoy this. But, uh, I, you know, working on a new book, uh, just starting to sketch it out and uh, just, I, you know, just doing a little more coaching, a lot of virtual speaking, which I like, uh, but I do, uh, the bear doesn't go, bear doesn't go over the mountain real well on a virtual delivery. Uh, I can't feel it from the audience uh, real fast, but I'll tell you that I haven't been doing it lately, but I actually created my own little laugh box and I put it next to my microphone. And when I deliver for larger companies, I actually tell them, look, I'm used to I'm used to people finding me funny. So when I think I'm funny, if you don't mind, I'm going to hit my own button on this side. <laughs> Have your <laughs> own so applause I meter. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Where can people reach you, Rob? J O L L E S dot com, and you know, I've got a podcast called the uh, Pocket Size Pep Talks. And I write something called a Blarticle. But if you go to Jollis dot com, you'll learn all you need to know about me. All right. I want to thank you. You've been listening to an interview with my guest, Rob Jollis. Remember to get your complimentary dream roadmap where I lay out my five steps to pursue and succeed at your dream just by going to followyourdreampodcast.com slash dream roadmap. Again, that's followyourdreampodcast.com 
slash dream roadmap. And you've been listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am your host, Robert Miller. You should all feel free to email me at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. Again, that's robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And all of my music is available at projectgrandslam.com and the pgsstore.com. And if you liked what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And now you're going to hear the entire song that we played a snippet of at the beginning of this episode. It's called No One's Fool. I wrote it for an album that we called PGS7 that my band Project Grand Slam released in 2019. And the cover photo for this album is really pretty cool. And I wanted to mention it. You know, covers used to be important when music was released on LPs. But as music went to CDs and now to streaming, covers have become almost a lost art. Well, PGS7 has a photo of a baseball jersey with the number seven on the back hanging in a clubhouse locker. And the number seven is significant for two reasons. First, because it was our seventh studio album. And second, because anyone who grew up in the era that I did knows that the most famous number seven in all of sports was Mickey Mantle. So that was my tip of the hat to the Mick. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com. She won't make me run and hide. She won't make me go outside. She won't make me break no fool. Don't she won't, she's no one's fool. She won't make me climb the hill. She won't make me take a pill. She won't make me swim the pool. Don't she won't, she's no one's fool. Oh, yeah, she won't. She never will She's very cool She's no one's fool
won't make me run and hide. She won't make me go outside. She won't make me break no rule. No, she won't. She's no one's fool. She won't make me climb the hill. She won't make me take a pill. She won't make me swim the pool. No, she won't. She's no one's fool. Oh, yeah, she won't. She never will. She's very cool. Be cool. 